Walter Isaacson, thank you for joining us. We're here to talk about your new book, Elon Musk. A lot has already been written about Elon Musk. He lives his life uh, between the tweets, upended, reinvented the auto industry, aerospace, now trying it with Twitter turned X. You spent two years shadowing him. What did you learn that we didn't already know about Elon Musk? Well, there's certainly multiple Elon Musk, multiple personalities, whether it's the hardcore engineering mode that you know so well where he can figure out how to do a battery cell, or more importantly, figure out how to do steps on an assembly line that will make the battery cell. But also there's almost a demon mode of Elon Musk where he turns really dark. And that can be very problematic, especially when it came to acquiring Twitter, which I think involves more emotional intelligence. The other thing I learned about Musk is where those demons come from. And they come from a childhood that was rather brutal, a father that was psychologically abusive. All of us have demons, probably, from childhood. Mine are probably a bit milder than others, and his a lot worse than others. But with a Musk or anybody, you figure out, how did they channel those demons and turn them into drives? I want to get to Demon Mona just a second and talk about his father. Well, let's set the maybe set the table here. He let you go everywhere. How you know were there ground rules? Anything off limits? Did you sleep on the factory floor next to him? <laughs> you know, I slept in Airstream trailers down in the south tip of Texas, where SpaceX has its launch pad. I spent a lot of late nights in factories. He put nothing off limits, which surprised the heck out of me. I mean, meetings that were about forward-looking products, everything else, he said, I just want to surprise you about the transparency. And my side of the deal was fine. I want to be everywhere, but you get no control over the book. You don't even get to read it before it comes out. Has he read it now? I don't know. He says on Twitter, I don't know, he says he hasn't, so we'll see. You've written a lot of books. Uh, Steve Jobs' biography was maybe perhaps an instant classic. And in that book, you talk about the challenge of breaking through the Apple co-founder's reality distortion field. Uh, with Musk, you had extraordinary access. By my count, you talked to more than 120 people around him, close deputies, even family members, his father even. Did you worry about that reality distortion field that he has? the fact that he can sometimes be an unreliable narrator in his own life? Well, yes, he can be unreliable, and his memory is fallible, and he sort of cloaks himself as a hero in every tale. But I didn't feel a reality distortion field. He was not, he almost was unaware of my presence, it seemed, a lot of the time, because he'd be being a real jerk to people at a meeting or blow up on a walk around one of the rocket sites. And I think, wait a minute, doesn't he know I'm taking notes here? So it did surprise me how open and in some ways not trying to sugarcoat things he was. In some ways, you became part of the inner circle, though, right? You follow him around for so long. How did you balance that kind of push to have him talk to you, but also him asking you how he should do things? As an impartial observer, that must have been a challenge. Well, I tried very hard to be impartial, and no, I wasn't trying to give him advice. At one point, like he mentioned, he said something about some blue check marks, and I asked him a question, why the hell are you even labeling it this way? 
you know, what's the point of it? Mm -hmm. And then later he said, oh, yeah, Walter Isaacson told me not. I was like, no, no, that was just a question. So I tried pretty hard to just make it questions. The controversy was over labeling yeah. uh, the BBC and NPR yeah. as state-affiliated media, and he yeah. said that he got the idea to get rid of that labeling because of you. Do you, I think maybe, though, it speaks to where he's getting inputs for the way he's making decisions. He's getting it beyond just his senior leadership team. He's kind of canvassing the world sometimes. Yeah, he processes information from all over the place, canvasses the world on Twitter, puts up polls and things. And sometimes you have no idea that he's getting feedback. He's not very good at getting pushback from people around him. He can bristle. But he batch processes it, which means it takes a while. You watch him process something, and then he'll switch course on a lot of things. You spend a really significant part of the book in the beginning talking about his childhood and his relationship with his father. What was, what was the early days of Elon Musk like? You know, he's a scrawny kid, socially awkward, beaten up on the playground a whole lot. Went to a wilderness camp in which, you know, sort of survival. And he lost 10 pounds in a week because they kept beating him up and taking his food. But when he went back to the wilderness camp a few years later, he had gotten bigger. He had learned a little judo. And he said, I just learned to punch people in the nose as hard as I could when they were being mean to me. And sometimes they'd beat me up, but if I punched them really hard in the nose, they wouldn't do it again. You almost see that nowadays, which is he's pugnacious. He sometimes can be so confrontational. And when in doubt, he punches in the nose. You talk about his relationship with his father. His father is almost described like a Jekyll and Hyde-like character. Sometimes he can be friendly, sometimes he can be volatile. Ashley Vance, in his biography of Elon Musk, kind of explored a little bit of this, and Musk has kind of alluded to some of this in the past, but I've never seen him go so in-depth about that childhood experience. Why do you think he was ready to talk about it now? It took a long time for Musk to want to talk about his childhood. I just sat there, I'd raise it every now and then, and sometimes we'd get to a place where suddenly he'd start talking about his father, and he would go, you get teary-eyed at times, very, very emotional, and just say, you don't know how bad the abuse was. And I talked, of course, to Kimball Musk, his brother, about it, and May Musk, his mother. But then I talked to Errol Musk, the father. I wanted to hear all sides of this. And after a while, Elon just kept opening up about the psychological scars he had when his father would make him stand in front of his father and yell at him for more than an hour and take the sides of the people who had beaten up Elon and call Elon stupid. You write that the PTSD from his childhood also instilled in him an aversion to contentment. You quote Grimes, who's the mother of three of his children and one of his former wives, about this kind of issue that he has. What do you think that means for the companies that he runs? What does that mean for the, the people that work for him as they try to reach the goals and sometimes achieve those goals. He's addicted to drama. He's addicted to risk. And whenever things seem to be going smoothly, he almost has a compulsion to stir things up. I've watched it happen a dozen times, whether it's on a, standing on a roof late at night where he's in, they're installing the Tesla solar roof, and he just says, okay, we're going to have to have a surge. 
and he disrupts the whole thing. He disrupted full-service driving a few months ago, and I was there, which is, no, we're going to make it based on artificial intelligence and machine learning, not on coding. So it allows him to become a disruptive figure, but also a difficult leader. One of the things that I think is really unique about this book is you're fly on the wall seeing this. You know, I have written, others have written a lot about the mercurial way or the way he treats his employees, but it's always from the perspective of after the fact. Mm-hmm. You were there in the room. Um, do, what do you think was one of the most surprising kind of instances of him losing his temper with one of his employees? Oh, one night in South Texas at the launch pad of SpaceX. It's a Friday night at 10 p.m., and everything's going smoothly. There's no launches being scheduled, and he looks, and there's only two people working at the launch pad. And all of a sudden, I see demon mode coming in, almost like storm clouds from the Gulf of Mexico. And I'm thinking, well, it's Friday night at 10 p.m., and yet he just reams out this guy named Andy who was in charge of uh, the launch pad site. And he orders a surge. He orders 100 people to come in from different parts of SpaceX, from Florida, California, so they can all work for 24 hours a day getting this thing done, even though there was no need to. Afterwards, I went back to Andy and said, what was it like to be in the line of fire? Because I not only wanted Elon's side, I wanted to see what it does to people like, you know, a person who has been caught in that demon mode. It's one of these interesting kind of paradoxes you see with Elon's companies. In one hand, he inspires. On mm-hmm. the other hand, he kind of runs through a lot of people Mm-hmm. rather quickly. Given all of the stories about how he treats people, why do you think he still has the ability to attract talent to his companies? Well, as you know, Gwen Shotwell at SpaceX has been there more than 20 years as the president. At Tesla, people like Fritz von Holzhausen, Lars Moravi, others have been there for a long time. And those are the ones who so buy into the mission that they're willing to take some of the burnout. I talked to some of the people on the autopilot team at Tesla when they were doing Optimus the Robot, and a couple of them had quit because it was just too brutal dealing with them, and they got burned out. But then one of them was back. I said, what happened? He said, I decided I had a choice between being burned out or being bored, and I decided I wanted to be burned out because I believed in the mission. So some survive, but a whole lot don't. Let's go back to this idea of demon mode. What is demon mode in your mind? Demon mode is something that happened to his father as well. It's almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where a cloud comes over and he gets into a trance and he can just be tough in a cold way. He never gets really angry, never gets that physical, but coldly brutal to people. And he almost doesn't remember afterwards what he's done. Sometimes I'll say, why did you say that to that person? And he'll look at me blankly as if he didn't quite remember what happened while he was in demon mode. And sometimes I've talked to people who've worked with him for years and years who considered themselves close with him, and they've seen it occur to them. He just goes into another world and doesn't seem to remember it after the fact. Exactly. It's almost you see a storm cloud coming in, and he's in a trance. And his father says, it happens to me, meaning the father, He says, and I can't help it. It just happens. And likewise, it happens to Elon. That's not to excuse it, but he hardly remembers that he's done it. Now, one of the things that Claire Boucher, 
written on his grime set is you don't want to be around him when he's in demon mode. It's really frightening, he sa she said. But she, and then she added, but demon mode is what gets shit done. You uh, were around it. Did you, get to, did you get a sense of when it was going to come? I remember once, late at night, and Grimes was there. She leaned over to me and said, demon mode. And I didn't see it yet, it was, but she knew it was about to happen, like somebody can feel the change in pressure. And boom, about a minute later, he got really dark. So it's like being somebody, somebody who has multiple personalities at times. Sometimes he'll be giddy and funny and pulling out his phone and making you watch a Monty Python clip about silly walks while he's doing Optimus the Robot. But then he can switch uh, quickly to being engineering mode or sometimes being inspirational and sometimes being very dark. Is demon mode Elon Musk's superpower? Is it equivalent to Steve Jobs' reality distortion field? Is, is demon mode the a way that allows Elon to kind of plow through when something's needed to be plowed through? That's sort of the theme of the book is can you take out the dark threads and still have the whole fabric? And it's true of Steve Jobs, which is he had a reality distortion field. And without that, he wouldn't have driven people crazy, but it wouldn't have driven people to do things they didn't think they could do. Likewise, there are times where this risk-taking, dark, I'm going to push ahead no matter what personality is what it takes to, I mean, he's the only guy getting astronauts into orbit from the U.S., only guy who can send up that many satellites, who can land a booster, who can bring us into the air of electric vehicles. That doesn't excuse demon mode, but in the book, I try to show how that's one of the strands in a fabric. And as Shakespeare said, you know, we're molded out of our faults. If we pull that strand out, you might not get the whole cloth of Elon Musk. Is demon mode a lack of empathy, or is it something else? Demon mode certainly has a lack of empathy, and there are times when Musk very much has a lack of empathy. Uh, he says sometimes not having too much empathy can be beneficial because he'll talk about John McNeil, who had been president of Tesla. And John McNeil always wanted the people in front of him to like him. He was always very kind, which meant that he didn't fire people. He wasn't tough enough on them. So sometimes, Steve Jobs said this to me as well, if you're somebody who's going to wear velvet gloves and not tell people something they're doing is wrong and not say it tough enough, you'll never get things going. I think about Michael Lewis's uh, Liar's Poker and kind of the unintended consequences of that book that kind of inspired a generation to go to Wall Street when he yeah. thought it was perhaps kind of a cautionary tale. Do you think some of the details about Elon Musk's life, that demon mode, uh, might inspire a generation of uh, wannabe entrepreneurs or wannabe uh, business executives to be an asshole? Or, or are we inspiring a generation of assholes uh, in behavior that really is probably a nightmare for a lot of HR departments? Are there lessons here, though, that you, know, you think uh, the future can take from the way Elon Musk operates? Well, certainly don't try this. You shouldn't try to be like Elon Musk. Biographies are not how-to books. Uh, with Steve Jobs, people would come up to me after they read the book and said, I'm just like Steve Jobs. When somebody does something bad, I tell them it sucks. I go, wait a minute, have you invented the iPhone? Have you invented the Macintosh? We don't have either the right to be that way, nor should they be that way. So I hope people come from the books on anybody and say, 
all right, I'm going to try to learn the lessons of what makes somebody effective, but I'm also going to learn the cautionary tales. You don't have to be this mean. I guess you bring up Steve Jobs and Musk. Uh, did you see any similarities between the two? Oh, yeah. Both of them have a deeply innovative sense that comes from, as Steve Jobs would say, being able to think different. They're willing to be disruptors. Uh, and, you know, Jobs' famous uh, ad uh, in which he says, here's to the misfits, the rebels, the round pegs in the square hole, and ends by saying, and the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Well, Elon Musk is crazy half the time. He thinks he can change the world. What's the biggest difference between the two? I think they each deserve separate biographies, and they each deserve uh, to be celebrated for what they did. Well, who would you rather have a beer with? Uh, <laughs> uh, and which of my children do I like the most or whatever? I think I'm not going to go there. Well, well, you know, one of the things that, you know, you, you would have some perspective on this. It, it seems like Steve Jobs could be legendarily hard on people. Mm -hmm. But it seemed as if towards the end of his career, he at least put together an executive team that he, he trusted. He would be hard on them, but they could change his mind. They might not be easy to change his mind, but he could do that. Mm-hmm. With Elon Musk, it seems very hard to change his mind. You have some examples of people being successful at it, but mm -hmm. do, you, do you think Elon is harder on his trusted team than Steve Jobs was? I think one of the failings Musk has is he doesn't take negative feedback uh, very well, and he doesn't uh, necessarily allow people to tell him no. On the other hand, after a while, the people who have worked with him a long time know how to turn him around. And eventually, he processes the information and does it. For example, he always was against building the cheap global car, the $25,000 car. He wanted to do a robo-taxi, but he wanted it to have no steering wheel. And they kept saying, no, 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 we have to do one for now. That'll be good. About four or five months ago, there's a meeting, and once again, they present him with this, you got to have the next generation $25,000 car, and you got to have it have a steering wheel. And he says, okay, let's do it. I mean, you're hitting on this thing that one of the, the axioms of kind of the way he operates is that it's okay to be wrong uh, just as long as you're not confident and wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the challenges is the way he treats people Sometimes people are afraid to tell him the bad news. I think that's one of his problems, is people sometimes are afraid to tell him the bad news, and then he keeps pushing at them and saying, get the bad news out there. Often, get it out there first. And people like Mark Jancosa, one of the sidekicks he has at SpaceX, who's been with him a long time, whenever you're at a meeting with him, he's forcing the people at the meeting to give the bad news first. And so those who succeed around Musk are those who figure out you got to give them the bad news, even if it's going to result in some unpleasant scenes. Another key, one of the ways of how he tries to manage or how he kind of tries to think about the world is something he calls first principles, which is mm -hmm. essentially a problem-solving way to not take what's been done in the past as the way it should be done in the future, as trying to reach the ultimate goal of whatever you're setting out, uh, kind of getting to the root problem and, and figuring out from there. But that's very abstract. It's kind of hard to put that, understand what he means by that. But it seems as if by sitting around with him, you've kind of seen the way he's trying to impart that decision-making framework to people with something called the algorithm. What is the algorithm? 
The algorithm is a five-step process for not only making good products and designing good products, but manufacturing them. And you're right, it begins with first principles. He says, question every requirement. And by first principles, he means look down at the physics. If somebody says, no, we can't build it at this price, he says, tell me how much the materials cost, tell me exactly what's involved here, and then tell me you can or can't do it. When he first was trying to buy a rocket booster in Russia early on, and they were charging him $15 million or something, on the flight home, he calculated how much is the cost of materials and fuel, and he said, okay, those are the first principles. So we should be able to make it at a much cheaper cost. With the algorithm, he's always saying, question every requirement, and then delete, delete, delete. So he simplifies things. And then, only then, do you start to speed up the manufacturing process and eventually automate it. One of his big mistakes at Tesla was he went to automation too quickly before he had deleted every part and questioned every requirement. You're a fly on the wall through a lot of things, including uh, the kind of the issues that arose out of Starlink's involvement um, with Ukraine and Russia. You know, there's some details in there about how he limited the ability of mm -hmm. Starlink uh, to operate in parts of, of the world that affected the Ukraine and, and their mm -hmm. plans for the war. And this has sparked real questions about the power that he holds in geopolitical settings, the power of war. Do you think he has really processed that power that he has? That I watched him process the power he has, say, over Ukraine. And the first thing you have to realize is he's the only person who's been able to put up communication satellites that were able to withstand rushing hacking. And so he supplies them to Ukraine in order to save their war effort. But after a while, he's geofenced off part of Crimea. It causes one of their attacks to fail. And he realizes, hey, why am I in this movie? I made this thing so that people could watch movies and play video games. And he eventually calls uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they work out a deal where Starlink sells a certain number of these satellites to the U.S. military. And the U.S. government gets to decide how they're used. So you watch him process the idea that maybe he's got to give up some of this power. I mean, it's one thing for him to kind of be I don't know, wishy-washy or mercurial when he's running Tesla and mm -hmm. changing things, or, or SpaceX and changing things. Those are his businesses. But when it comes to influencing war, um, that's taking it to a new level. And it makes you kind of wonder, is he King Solomon in these, these decisions, or is he kind of a new kind of a dictator that is more powerful than a government? I think he's very mercurial, and he makes intuitive, impulsive decisions. And I think, as in the case with Starlink, he'll create something called Starshield, which is a military version of it, and say, and I'm going to give up control of this. I'm going to sell it to certain governments, and they have control over it. So he's somewhat self-aware, but he does have an epic, you know, hero complex of which he's some comic book character wearing his underpants on the outside trying to save the world. And that can be worrisome at times. I mean, one of the things about him is that he has acquired a lot of power, right? He's the world's richest man. He is changing industries. Mm -hmm. And you see over time that some people rise into power and maybe they want to use it with uh, velvet gloves or in the background. They don't necessarily want to, you know, have their footprints over things where he <laughs> has no objection to everyone knowing that he's, he's doing what he's doing. 
Do you think there's something different about that? Does it get back to that original idea of punching somebody in the nose so they know that he's willing to punch them? I think it gets back to a kid, scrawny kid, getting beaten up on the playground and then hiding in the corner of a bookstore reading the comic books of the superheroes. And he really did develop a sense of mission, a mission that we should become spacefaring and go to Mars, a mission that we should move to the era of electric vehicles, that we have to tame robotics and artificial intelligence. And I think he sees himself as truly driven by these epic missions. You, you know, you talk about mission, and some of his key supporters have been frustrated uh, with him because they bought into the mission of Tesla, they bought into the mission of SpaceX, but then they see him with Twitter now known as X, and they wonder why he's putting his time there. What was your takeaway? Was it because he wants to own the playground, <laughs> as you kind of suggested, or was it just impulse? It was impulse to buy Twitter. <laughs> it's because he wants to own the world's great playground. It's also because 20 years earlier, he had created a company called X.com, which became PayPal, and he wanted it to become both a financial system connected to a social network and everything app. And he sees Twitter turned into X being something that can fulfill that vision. I'd have to imagine that when you started out to write this book, mm -hmm. you th what did you think the ending was going to be? Because I can't imagine you imagined Twitter X was going to be the kind of the ending part of it. No, when I started the book, I thought, okay, man, this is somebody who's shooting up rockets and he can make them land and get things in orbit. Nobody else can do it. He's also learned how to do manufacturing, which nobody's been able to do recently. He's also brought us into batteries and electric vehicles that can sell a million a year. And I thought, this is going to be a fun, rollicking book about some great technology. But yeah, then Twitter comes along, and for that matter, artificial intelligence, where he summons me last March back to Austin and says, I'm going to start a company to do AI. So this is a guy who can't leave well enough alone. Do you see him moving into a new era where he's essentially uh, seeding a bunch of ideas, almost a Thomas Edison character, putting money towards bigger ideas and letting smart people invent it? Or is he going to keep control like a Henry Ford uh, back in the day of, of making sure the Model T was the Model T for as long as possible? Well, I think one of his uh, weaknesses, I'll call it, is he really is a control freak. You want him to give up control. Say of Twitter, you're thinking, okay, Linda Yaccarino should run it. But he doesn't really see too much control. Gwen Shotwell at SpaceX learns how to deal with him. He really uh, is focused on the product. She gets to run the company. But no, I don't see him giving up a lot of control over these companies, even though they're now six or seven of them, depending on how you count, that he's running. Are we in the final act of this kind of narrative? Uh, are, has he peaked? Is he on the decline? Um, I would say that for many years people have predicted his kind of the epic collapse of something and he's been able to get through it. Is, is this just another example of that? You know, throughout my book, we've got the epic collapse is about to happen. We have, as you know well, 2018, when Tesla and SpaceX are both having problems. Go back to 2008, they both run out of money at the end of that year. People say it's all over. Likewise, uh, after he gets Twitter, and he starts ripping out the servers and fires 85% of the team, I keep waking up in the morning thinking, this thing won't appear on my phone anymore. It's going to be gone and taking on AI. It seems like he's doing it late after OpenAI and Google have done it. But at the moment, nothing's collapsed. Some of them are going to collapse. It's going to be like his rocket ships and everything else. 
He believes you can't get into orbit without blowing things up every now and then. So there will be debris, there will be things blown up. But I think, you know, most things he's done keep surprising me as being successful. Okay, he's been a success in these these places. Let's go back to the beginning of the book, though, the kind of the influence of his father and these mm. demons that he was fighting and the concern that his mother even ventures out <laughs> that he could become like his father. Right. In the end, is has he become his father? It's an epic struggle, almost like Star Wars, where, you know, the Luke Skywalker's got to fight the dark side of the Force and becoming Darth Vader, becoming his father. And that's what May Musk said. The danger for Elon is that he becomes his father. And you see signs of that, even in the demon mode, the dark mode he gets into. You see signs of it in some of the tweets and the political move to the right. But you also see the struggle to harness the demons. And you see an understanding of what his childhood instilled in him and how he's got to fight those demons. You say in the book that John McNeil tells you, John McNeil had been mm -hmm. uh, one of the key deputies at Tesla at a certain point, that he asked Elon if he was bipolar, and, and Elon suggests that maybe that was the case. Elon and Saturday Night Live a few years ago talks about how he has Asperger's. I'm actually making history tonight as the first person with Asperger's to host SNL. Though his mother says he was never tested as a kid. Or at least the first to admit it. <laughs> How should we think of these? Do you, do you, did he talk to you about Asperger's? Do you think he actually has it? I mean, it's an idea that's been out there for a long time, but um, is it diagnosed? Is, is, is it part of kind of who he is and why he's successful? Is it part of why he struggles? Well, in the book, you'll hear him talking about his psychological struggles. You hear him talking about his depression. Uh, yeah, he says, I've never been diagnosed as bipolar, but that might be the case. Uh, as with Asperger's, there's so many different forms of autism spectrum disorder, but there's some elements in his case where you see he doesn't have that empathy that his brother Kimball has. So all of that is part of this makeup of this complex character. Most of the time it's channeled into being able to accomplish some pretty astonishing things, but a lot of the times it makes your head snap. In closing here, does Elon Musk go to Mars and die there, like he's talked about? Well, he says, I certainly want to go to Mars and die there, but not on impact. No, I don't think he personally will make it to Mars, even though he's kind of hoping so. I think by the end of his life, he will have gotten missions to Mars, but he's not like some of these other billionaires. He's not eager to be the first on the rocket.